So hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. This is Karen Becker from Acuity Brands. We've created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Lindsay Baker. Hey, Kira. And this is Kira Gould. How are you doing, Kira? How, how's life? Life is good in this new normal, this new format we have. It is, honestly, it's, I think it's stabilized. I'm sure I feel that way because it's spring break. And so I am not <laughs> teaching fourth grade while working, um, which is <laughs> awesome. I hadn't really realized that that's a thing that happens. We should say to our listeners that we're so, okay, so we're basically now in, what is it, week three? Week three of our California um, COVID-19 shutdown. shutdown. Right. Um, and uh, so so spring break, is that, so does that mean that when you are, when you're homeschooling a kid that, that you don't have to, you, it's spring break, so everyone gets a, a break, but you- Well, we decided- at, at our house that that would be the case simply because okay. we would have been on spring break anyway and he needed a break of after two weeks of being taught by his parents um, and we needed a break to get some work done and <laughs> <laughs> so yes we decided we would stick with the idea that even though we were having spring break at home that um, we would have a break so well <laughs> I, I, um, I, I recently found out that my older brother um, bought a bag of sand and made a box, put the sand in this box and has been using his virtual reality headset to pretend that he's on the beach. So um, not that I recommend that specifically for others, but if you're feeling that you really want to get some real spring break, you I, could try that. Uh, I really like that idea. <laughs> I would have been in Mexico this week and there's been a lot. We did decorate the house in, with the Mexican theme for the week. Aww. So <laughs> that's awesome. Just yeah. to give it a little flair. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that that sounds But like how are it. you? Oh, we're we're all right. We're um we're here in Oakland. We live in a big building, um, a big tall building that looks out over Lake Merritt, um, which is lovely and we appreciate every day just that we can see you know the the sun coming up and the sky and all these things we also unfortunately walk watch everybody walking around Lake Merritt and it, it's gotten quite crowded um, yeah. which is always difficult uh, so yeah we um, we uh, are struggling to make sure we can get the time outside and have the sun on our face without feeling like we're too close to anyone else but Right. Uh, we're, we're fine, though. I think um, I, I've been reading a lot. I, I, I actually wanted to share this one piece that I listened to. It was a great podcast. Um, it's uh, Kara Swisher's Recode Decode. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, the, the guest was uh, Chamath from Social Capital, who's a great venture capitalist. I, I enjoy following him and his work. And he was on the show talking about what is going to happen to our economy um, in the wake of all of this, this strange and difficult and tragic, uh, you know, um, crisis that we're in. And, and he, he had a lot of really interesting stuff to say. I think a lot of our listeners would enjoy hearing him talk about 
um, you know, I mean, he, he sounds uh, certainly very pessimistic about venture capital and Silicon Valley and what, and, and being one of those people, he thinks it's going to kind of change a lot yep. um, and be less aggressive in many ways. Um, but he also just had really great things to say about um, the economy, about the potential of green jobs um, coming out of this infrastructure uh, spending that would create some some positive outcomes. He's not overly optimistic, which I think is probably right uh, right now, but um, it just was helpful. It was a helpful podcast to sort of think about, you know, what does this mean for real estate? What does this mean for technology? What does this mean for sustainability? All that stuff. So great. Have an hour. (laughs) That's great. That's I'm going to check that out. I, it is interesting. I mean, I do think that people are starting to think about, you know, now that the sort of understanding of it is with us and we're living the reality of it, we're starting to think a little bit farther. And I think that the pandemic and and whatever recession or potentially deep recession um, may have some interesting impacts on climate and sustainability work too. Um, These are things that help us understand like global connectedness and the urgency of what we're facing. So I don't know, we'll see. I, I saw something that Bill McKibben said today was some, um, you know, he said something along the lines of it, it is for, for those of us who are in the climate fight, uh, this is a moment where the rest of humanity sees that, you know, yeah. we are part, are part of something bigger than ourselves. Yes. And feel that, um, that the, the difficulty of, of having to grapple with, you know, um, <laughs> nature and science and these things, these powers, you know. So um, it's tragic, and our my heart goes out to all, obviously all of the people on the front lines right now. And I don't think this is necessarily the time that any of us are getting excited about the future, but um, but I think it's useful for all of us, you know, right? Thinking about what what this means for us and what role we can play and what the world is going to look like. And absolutely, that. absolutely, and that kind of lens shift can actually be longer term really valuable so yeah. there's, i think there's some there's some hope there <laughs> yeah yeah and speaking of hope i'm so excited about our guest today uh, on the podcast rosa shang um we're gonna have a really exciting conversation i think with rosa about equity and diversity and inclusion and um and uh, all sorts of things we're really excited that she's here rosa is the Principal is a principal at uh, Smith Group and the national director of equity, diversity, and inclusion for the firm, as well as being a, a, a studio leader for higher education here in the Bay Area. Um, welcome, Rosa. Thanks, Lindsay. Glad to be here. Rosa, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about how um, or why you chose to, to become an architect, sort of what you were, why you're inspired to do that. Um, Absolutely. So uh, it actually started when I was quite young at the ripe old age of 11. And (laughs) I had grown up in the suburbs of New Jersey and thought that architecture uh, pretty much equated to track homes and malls. And that was the extent of my exposure to architecture at large until I went to go visit my grandparents in China over the summer and they uh, took me on a tour to the Great Wall, the Forbidden City, through the various narrow alleyways at that time of the Hutong, the traditional uh, subdivisions of the city. And I got to experience 
a larger context of what architecture was, but my grandfather was very poignant in uh, sharing what he thought architecture was about and that it was uh, beyond shelter and beyond its immediacy. It was actually a time capsule of the cu culture and the civilization of the time. And that was kind of a wow, aha moment for me. Mm -hmm. in, people having or creating or designing and having impact on humanity at large, right? And we talk about um, the conditions that we experience today, having that same impact on humanity, uh, but in the built environment, we have that power to have that impact every day. So that started the journey, if you will. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, Thank you. Great. Um, well, can you tell us about how you got interested in sustainability and then now your focus on equity, inclusion, and diversity, um, really how you made that career path for yourself? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, I had uh, been exposed abstractly to sustainability uh, by the frugalness of my parents, you know, as immigrants uh, coming to the country. We uh, bought secondhand furniture out of necessity, and we always uh, reused our plastic bags, you know. Uh, so we had a yep. closet full of plastic bags and we never wasted food, you know, and we always uh, recycled as much as we could. So it was kind of a natural part of our lifestyle, uh, but at the same time, not knowing sustainability and its larger impact to the built environment until I got to architecture school. And even I think earlier in my career, it was not, uh, it was known as an important thing, but it wasn't. Uh, really truly understood on its impact on that humanity level mm -hmm. uh, until I think it was um, after I got married and had my first child and then thinking about this existential crisis, right, of us passing our uh, current state to the future, to our children, and then what they will have to live with, right? So that was a big wow moment in, um, in relationship to what I was doing as an architect. I had committed um, to focusing on that and it was quite timely because uh, when I came back from maternity leave, we interviewed for a project at Mills College. Uh, the Laurie Loki Graduate School of Business was uh, just starting up. It was probably five years old or young. Uh, and at that point, uh, they were uh, endowed to build a uh, business school that uh, focused on their mission of socially responsible business and sustainability was one of their core mission goals. So our, uh, we won the project and our design concept was to embody sustainability within the building as this living, breathing uh, teaching tool that the building was educating the students and keeping them at task for uh, changing the way business is done, but also how that impacts the built environment and the natural environment as stewards. That's wonderful, especially to hear at a business school. That's terrific. Yes. Um, well, and so with respect to the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece of it in the architecture field, what do you think people should know about working on those issues in, in this realm? Yeah, I think it was concurrent with that project experience uh, for Mills because they are an all-women's college for undergrad, and they really believed in uh, advancing women's leadership in business but also in education etc and what it really highlighted to me at that critical point in my life was also that there are a lot of challenges and barriers that women in particular face um, mothers 
even more so in the architecture profession in parallel to my exposure to how it was challenging the business world and the dearth of women in leadership in business and then my own self-reflection on that in architecture, right? So mm -hmm. um, it started off with a, my own personal frustrations of hitting the glass ceiling, um, the work life home divide of not feeling successful as an architect or as a parent, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was um, very depressed uh, personally and wondering if I should continue on with architecture. And uh, a lot of people were trying to convince me otherwise. And it was a positive moment where um, I had attended a conference called the Missing 32%, which was trying to address the lack of women in leadership positions in architecture. There was this statistic of approximately 50, 50% of men and women uh, graduate from architecture school, but then by the time uh, they become licensed professionals and leaders, only 18% uh, are remaining are women. So thus the missing 32% conversation. And out of that was born this energy that, uh, renewed energy that I should stay in the profession, I should do something to change the challenges that I faced and to make sure that nobody ever had to go through those challenges. And uh, we formed a committee within AIA San Francisco at the time and it became known as Equity by Design. Mm -hmm. um, but that whole movement was really exciting in, in realizing that I wasn't the only one. And again, that larger uh, cognizance of there's other people going through these things and it's actually more people than we think, more than ourselves and reaching beyond ourselves. So five years later, <laughs> fast forward to 2020, um, we are, we've uh, conducted three research studies on the nature of uh, career fulfillment and equitable um, frameworks uh, or lack thereof in architecture firms and the attrition of those leaving the profession, men and women, and um, trying to right the ship, if you will. So from our research studies, uh, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from architecture firms, both small, medium, and large, and extra large, in taking that data and then creating uh, workplace guidelines, transforming the culture of how we value not only the people that are doing the work, but how do we increase the value of what architects do. That's terrific. That's cool. Been really <laughs> I, it, the, I can't say enough about how powerful that research has been in terms of just shining a light on what's really happening. I think that's why you've gotten positive feedback from so many firms because they see it in their own firms and think it might just be anecdotal and understanding that it's really systemic is so important because you can't fix what you don't understand, right? Absolutely. I mean, so it's just critical. And uh, the, the current situation, I think, and the connection, I've always thought that there was a connection to sustainability, but in our, uh, I think in our education, we're taught to silo and compartmentalize information or the sanity of our brains, right? So that mm -hmm. it's digestible. But in this day and age, um, there's a new movement towards intersectionality, which is kind of like a matrices of finding those interconnections because that is actually life as we know it is the web of connections of these topics that our brains can't process all at the same time. But in order to make the leap forward, we have to start making those connections. So equity, diversity, inclusion are not in a bucket 
uh, by themselves, but they're actually connected to social justice and um, impact on urban development. And they're connected to sustainability and resilience. And we're seeing that more and more in the reality of our situations today, not only with the COVID pandemic, but um, with uh, what I call a climate uh, change refugees. And we've seen this um, where entire populations of various countries are uh, forced to leave their current place because of um, changing conditions, um, lack of resources, et cetera. And that is causing a political crisis, right, with global refugees. Mm -hmm. But that's directly linked to the environment and the impact of what uh, most people are grappling with addressing or figuring out how to address it in an impactful way. Yeah, oh, Rosa, you just said so many things that I want to unpack a little bit more. <laughs> yes, I think, please. For our, for our listeners, one of them, just going back to the very beginning, was about this term intersectionality, which I'm hoping that we will will come up in our podcast um, again. But since we're just starting out, um, I wonder if you want to kind of help listeners understand what that term means and how we can use it to describe that connection between the sustainability realm, climate change movement, et cetera, with equity, inclusion, diversity. Uh, I, th I think you make a great point. I totally agree 150% that we've all, um, that there's been a, a, an awakening to the notion that these struggles are really um, interconnected and that we benefit from seeing our struggles as, as um, strengthening each other rather than sort of fighting each other. Um, so can you talk Absolutely. a little bit about that term? So um, intersectionality in its original uh, modernized interpretation was, I'll attribute that to Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, who started talking about that as a theory of African-American women and the fact that when we look at data, we either only look at it through monoliths of men and women as this binary, right? Mm -hmm. And then we look at race separately. But she was trying to connect the dots, if you will, to say, no, as an African-American woman, I am actually um, experiencing more of the challenges, more of the biases. So it was born from that um, movement, a feminist thought movement, and but also uh, cross racist uh, race lines and racism uh, to address uh, the compounded uh, challenges of particular people. And I took that theory and expanded upon it. Um, so beyond race, when we look at who is at risk and ultimately the question is who is most vulnerable in our society, uh, we can add to that yes and. So whether it's gender, whether it's um, non-binary uh, gender identities, right? So uh, whether it's uh, race and ethnicity, whether it's socioeconomic background or physical or mental challenges, um, whether it's uh, single parenthood or those with neurodiverse um, tendencies, right? And neurodiversity uh, being another new area of discussion where bipolarity or uh, those with um, manic depression, et cetera, or a whole host of issues are still able to function, but rather than being uh, labeled, if you will, or biased uh, experienced, they can overcome that with the right support. So 
we have expanded that uh, theory, intersectional theory and intersectional approach to look at uh, solutions as well. So it's not just identifying the problems and the conditions which the most vulnerable people, and if you check multiple boxes, that kind of increases the likelihood of that person experiencing those barriers. But how can we use intersectional theory and approach as a solution-based uh, framework, right? So in terms of us trying to solve climate uh, change and climate impact, change impact, we can't do it alone in this isolated box or resiliency because everything's connected to the social condition of the people that are you know, coexisting in the built environment or the natural environment. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, there's so many ways of understanding why intersectionality is so important to the fight. Thank you for for that. I think one of, you know, even just the most basic example that I can think of is that if we don't have a diverse group of people designing, building, maintaining our our built world, then we don't really have much hope of that built world supporting uh, all of the different people in the world and all of their all of our different needs and all of our different abilities and all of our different you know ways of getting through the world, all of that stuff. Um, and so it you know it it's in inclusion comes I think very much at the beginning. Um, well, so I guess maybe one question in wrapping up that bit of the conversation, I'm curious if it's affected, if you feel more empowered now that you're doing that work, do you feel like you broke through a glass ceiling? Is it still a struggle for you to kind of figure out what to do next? Or is it, has this like opened a, a like a hatch in the ceiling for you? <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, and in an amazing way, I when I was uh, pondering what how I was going to leverage this information and have the most impact, uh, the opportunity came up at Smith Group a couple of years ago, uh, as they were trying to, uh, they were championing a bunch of these initiatives towards women in leadership and diversity, but uh, not in a, a larger framework, if you will, that was integrated with their. Uh, with our strategic goals and when I was hired it was my charge to help create that framework to amplify that vision and now we're starting to have the integration between the sustainability lead and myself so that we are truly walking the talk of what I just mentioned about the intersectional approach so that's really exciting but in our day-to-day -day work um, I'm really fortunate in um, being the higher ed studio leader because I believe that that in that context and that body of work that students are one of our population's most vulnerable, um, especially those that cross multiple of those challenge checkboxes that I mentioned to you before. In order for those uh, to get more opportunities to be more socially mobile economically and opportunity-wise, they have to roll the dice and take the risk by taking on more debt than they could ever imagine. Right, and so yeah. in that debt value proposition, what, what are they getting in return um, in the campus environment, in the physical environment, in the resources that are supporting them and what challenges do they face on a daily basis, but also at a long range risk factor, right, for um, making it out and graduating and having the skills to be resilient. And uh, so we've focused a lot on being the champions in the design realm of not only um, 
student outreach and engagement so that we gather their input and hear their voices through survey work and amplifying that to um, not only their local university, the ones, the institutions we're serving, but also a, a larger national trend, if you will, of what uh, challenges students are facing today, whether it's basic needs insecurity with food and shelter, or again, the neurodiversity where more of the students are likely to be depressed or um, have um, challenges with um, you know, suicide or other, or other challenges similar to that. And um, really looking at what's missing from the resource pool, but also space resources for students beyond just the classroom, right? So we call, I know people call it third space, uh, amenity space, but we're, we're starting to call it first space or necessity space, right? So how are we champions of making sure that within programming, um, within uh, institutional guidelines that the way, the antiquated way that uh, these program uh, requirements were developed or allocated or funded are changed and modernized to reflect the needs of these students. That sounds pretty heroic. I can say from having worked a little bit on K through 12 school uh, design and design standards and reform and all of these things. Like I, 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 one of the things I think at least I've found most rewarding and I've seen other people find really rewarding in the design realm is the kind of work that you're doing where you start to ask yourself the question, why do we build exactly the way we build and tracing it out, you know, whether it's um, to the uh, some kinds of uh, regulations that we have at a state level or school boards or um, federally for how we build especially when it comes to education there's just there are a lot of restrictions that are all you know many of them very well intended um, but it's always been my hope that as we get more advanced in designing buildings that we learn how to build buildings and operate buildings that accept and support a diversity of people uh, absolutely you know, like that 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 in of itself is a fascinating design constraint <laughs> for those of you <laughs> interested in that sort of aesthetic side of it like uh it's so much more exciting to think about how buildings can support diversity rather than um ugh, man we could talk a long time about the ways in which architecture has has tended and, to try to put us all in a box you know and there's a value proposition for institutions um beyond that it's a socially the right thing to do or that it's uh, seen as kind of a moral um, requirement right of us to 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 hold up these higher values it actually has a benefit to the bottom line in the long term because with the students that do graduate and are successful there's a huge um, connection of loyalty to that institution right and mm -hmm that kind of paying it forward mentality of those future successful students coming back and remembering those critical moments where they were supported and they had those resources is, you know, in, in the long term, um, campus loyalty and institutional loyalty and the future success of um, other students, right, coming in in the future has a lot of potential. So it's not just who's there right now, but how can we create a legacy of paying it forward and doing the right thing?
That's awesome. Well, so this makes me think about students and other people who might be looking for opportunities to get involved in this work in their career. So I'm wondering, in terms of equity by design, are there things, are there resources or places you can point people to uh, that can help them understand how they might be able to do some of this work in their practice? Absolutely. Um, so it's not just equity by design, but uh, we're part of a larger uh, consortium, if you will, uh, of ad hoc uh, connections, but design justice uh, advocates uh, and uh, Brian Lee out of um, New Orleans, who heads up Colocate Design, started a design justice summit, but also create a framework for doing outreach in a meaningful way where uh, people ask themselves the hard questions, like who is at risk, who's not at the table, who's being most um, adversely affected by the conditions that I've created, and what are the systems you know, asking ourselves, what are the systems at play that uh, are the source of the injustice that we see in front of us? So it's this kaleidoscope effect of if we unravel the sweater, if you will, uh, we're kind of seeing the DNA of what we need to do to change those systems, right? And if we're creative in, in the design professions to be able to use that creativity and you know, redefine what design excellence means, redefine what design means, period, and how that we can engage the public in that part participatory design process. So we're actually using uh, surveys and poll everywhere in our design process with not only students and faculty on their uh, opinions and feedback about the design strategies that we're proposing. You know, and, and it's really great to see them voting and explaining the why and really getting into uh, things that we don't necessarily see from our points of privilege, right? That they are facing in their immediacy that uh, get elevated based on that forum. Yeah, I just wanna highlight um, something that I really appreciate about the way that you're talking about this stuff, which is that unfortunately architecture and and I mean, you could, I guess you could say the larger um, buildings industry has a, has a not great reputation or past as it relates to equity, diversity, and inclusion, in particular in this issue of what I'm just gonna call what one would call it in this realm, which is sort of the white savior complex of like, I know what people need, you know, because I'm educated and smart and I think very creatively. Um, and what you're talking about and the work that actually gets done is the difficult and important work of listening and trying to build community and consensus and uh it's time you know it's time consuming it's it's a lot harder than sort of sitting down by yourself at your desk and saying this is what i think a space should be or this is how i think think a system should function um you know it, it is really collaborative and and i just i just want to point out to listeners how refreshing it, i think it is to hear you talk about the work in a way that is completely not self-aggrandizing in any way, nor is it um, patronizing. You know, it's, it's just great. It's really Thank lovely. You. Thank it you. For I totally agree. And to that point, I'm, I'm just curious in terms of, you know, equity in the building industry and that, that um, steep climb that we have, shall we say, to refer to what Lindsay was just saying. 
I mean, what do you think the major progress areas are in that, um, and or or areas where there's lack of progress? Maybe the biggest gaps that are around. I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> um, I think at its core, it's a it's a philosophical acknowledgement, and it's part of that existential, like the individual versus the collective, right? And I think in American society and American culture, there is a, a beauty about freedom and the individual and us each exercising our power, right, to be the best that we can be, to be leaders and to be champions. But at the same um, level, there is a dichotomy to that where we're part of the greater whole, right? And we're seeing that now with COVID in terms of the solution. So in order to mitigate, we have to um, restrain our individual freedoms in light of the greater good, right? So uh, we're all practicing sheltered place, we're minimizing our with social distancing, et cetera, because we know the impact otherwise if we just went about our business and did whatever we wanted. And nobody is spared from, unfortunately, this experience, but at the same time, it's that we each have an opportunity to rise to the occasion, to be the champions of a better world that we want to see. It's not somebody else's problem. And I think for too long, sustainability or even equity, diversity, inclusion, or even justice have been seen as somebody else's problem because it doesn't affect me on a daily basis. I have my toilet paper. I have my you know, uh, stock of my fridges fully stocked, et cetera. But the biggest challenge is to think of the people that don't have these resources, that don't have an internet connection that don't have a laptop, that don't have the private office, that are living um, with you know, six or seven of their relatives because they can't afford the decent affordable housing, right? So I, I think stretching our brains to be empathetic and put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and um, look at the causality. So we can't address diversity and inclusion, we can't address sustainability unless we look at uh, the injustices or inequity, the source issues, the barriers and the problems in order to restructure or redefine how we do things. So my new evol evolution of this is to say that we need a Jedi agenda. So justice and equity result in diverse and inclusive outcomes, the J-E-D-I, not Star Wars, <laughs> although people can um, channel their the force, you know, using the force for good. Um, but the Jedi agenda doesn't belong to anybody, but it belongs to all of us, right? It doesn't belong to a singular person, but it's kind of this spirit of coming together beyond our individual needs and desires and goals to say we have a way to contribute to this greater good, whether it's saving our planet, you know, the climate future, whether it's uh, avoiding the, any future pandemic challenges or disasters that are going to happen because of it. Um, I think that enlightenment of awareness is going to help us advance our cause and the urgency of it. I couldn't agree more. I, I love that notion of stretch your thinking and it really it's stretch your empathy, right? Like I, I, we, the common good as a notion is not something that people are very literate in and understanding how um, the, you know, weaknesses in our social fabric contribute to what everyone is experiencing um, is it's a huge lesson for us um, and I hope we can 
take it forward through this. Absolutely. I, I do see hope though, and uh, you may have seen on the news uh, last night even that uh, California is, uh, even though our numbers will rise early, uh, self-sheltering uh, and social distancing and has helped uh, in terms of us not seeing the extreme numbers that our um, other unfortunate uh, urban areas are experiencing right now. Right. And it, so it does show the impact of the power of our collective will to do something together. Yeah, it's cool. I feel like there's this idea of resilience that we're all experiencing much more viscerally now than we may have, you know, three months ago, like thinking mm -hmm. about what that word really means, you know, because I, th I think we've all seen what aspects of our society are not resilient. Right. Um, oftentimes, people living in precarity, economic precarity, um, that there's then the degree to which our entire community, our entire nation depends on people, you know. Um, so it's, it seems like there's some hope in the notion that we're all getting our heads around just how fragile uh, mm -hmm. we, we are living today and, and how inequity creates that fragility, you know. Uh, right. Absolutely. Rosa, there's one more thing I wanted to ask, and um, that's really about um, who you are inspired by these days in terms of leaders or, or people doing important work. Yes, um, the list is... Uh, plentiful, and I'm sure we don't have enough airtime to um, give a shout out to everyone, but I'm super extremely grateful to the Equity by Design Committee that's worked with me since we founded day one. So Lillian Asprin and Julia Mandel, um, Annalisa Pitts, and most uh, newly Antonia Bowman, um, they continue to forge on with me um, to uh, do the hard work of saying what's next. And what I mentioned about the Jedi agenda, we're actually trying to host uh, the Equity by Design 2020 Symposium on November 7th at the San Francisco Art Institute and hoping that we can gather again with anybody that's interested to talk about these critical issues in more detail and collectively launch with most urgency um, our climate future, uh, how health and wellness and you know resiliency and sustainability are all linked to our socio and economic stability and um, I'm really excited about that and I hope that you and your listeners will uh, try to join us and if, if we can't have it physically we'll have it virtually we'll figure out a way to do that right um, and uh, all those that have come before me in terms of um, women in, in architecture and sustainability who have um, really uh, been inspirational. Um, there uh, are a, a whole slew of people, and I'm just going to name a, a couple, and I hope I don't offend anybody by not naming them, but uh, Deanna Van Buren is a true inspiration in terms of um, leading designing justice, designing spaces, and talking about um, alternatives to the traditional justice system. So uh, restorative justice uh, being a huge inspiration to me and um, the work that she does, as well as um, you know, NOMA at large. So National or Organization of Minority Architects are doing a lot to encourage um, uh, those that are under traditionally underrepresented 
in architecture to not only increase the pipeline and exposure by getting to students at a younger age, whether it's K through 12, and um, encourage them to uh, explore a career in architecture. So Kim Dowdell of um, HOK, she is the president for the last two years and she's just making huge progress with the excitement and, and meaning and impact and the outreach that she has there. And um, the AIA at large has been, national organization has been very supportive of our efforts and locally at AIA San Francisco. So um, all the membership and the community at large in architecture have really risen to what we have um, framed as a call to action. Mm -hmm. Cool, that's great. Thanks so much, Rosa. Uh, such a pleasure. It's been really Oh, fun. likewise. <laughs> Super fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, thanks everyone. That is it for this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. We'll talk to you soon.